But I think there there is a major gap in the bridge between farm and consumer. Both sides get their defenses up. You know, consumers don't like, the, they kind of vilify farmers. So true. Yeah, and farmers get really frustrated with the logo or the lingo that yep. consumers use. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Our guest this week is living her and her family's dream. And honestly, the dream of a lot of people to have a small farm, grow their own food, have their family involved, and then also be able to support themselves by selling the food that they produce. Brianna Wyden is her name. Widner Farms is the name of the farm doing pastured pork in the Custer, Washington area. And it turns out living that dream is a lot of work too. And she talks about that as well as how she came from being, she, as she says, she and her husband being city slickers to running their own family farm. I'm Dylan Honkoop. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Glad you're here with us this week and joining me on my continuing journey to get to know the real people behind our food here in Washington State. Our sponsors are the Dairy Farmers of Washington. You can find them online at wadairy.org. They do similar things. They're sharing what life is really like for Washington State dairy farmers and all of the good things that they produce for us to eat. Also, Mana Insurance Group. Uh, founded by a classmate of mine from high school, honestly, and he's doing a great job. He's a great team leader, and the philosophy of his insurance firm is spot on, in my opinion, uh, focusing on protecting your family's financial future on a variety of fronts rather than waiting for something to go wrong and just reacting at that point. Mana Insurance Group, check them out, manainsurancegroup.com. So on your social media, you say that you guys are city slickers, yeah. turn farmers. <laughs> yeah, I explain that. Right. You don't look like city slickers to me <laughs> at all. So um, my husband actually grew up in a cul-de-sac, and he didn't even have a dog growing up. And um, he grew up in in Mount Vernon, so there, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's not a small town. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Laconer. It's really small. It's tiny. But I did grow up on yeah. a dead end road. We had I had dogs. I was thankful my parents did let me do 4-H with my horse, though. So it yeah. wasn't that I was completely out of touch, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it definitely was. We were both city kids. We both grew up in town and then wanted to do this. So when did you, how did you decide to, like, be full-on farmers? Because what I'm seeing here is you guys are living the real, legit, <laughs> like, farm family life, right? Yeah. Um. So we made the choice. We actually... Um, moved here in 2017. And originally our plan had been just to raise our own food. We wanted, you know, our big goal was just to reconnect with where our food came from. And um, prior to that, we always bought food from local as much as we possibly could. Mm -hmm. Um, But we realized that there, there was a a gap between consumers and farmers. And my husband just kind of fell in love with what he was doing. And one day he came home from his day job and just said, Hey, I'd like to do this. I'd like to actually do this for a living. And I'm the kind of person that, that if he makes the decision, like if he decided that that's what he wanted to do, I don't want to be the one that holds him back from yeah. doing it. So I was like, all right, you We're grow it, this. I'll sell it. <laughs> so that's so it was like one of these classic stories of hobby turned into yes. career. Yes. And, you know, we haven't been doing this for very long, um, but we definitely, we brought business sense into it. So we knew mm-hmm. that this wasn't, you know, we definitely took it and, and ran with it from the beginning. 
Yeah, what kind of work had you both been doing prior? Um, So I had built a business prior to this. Mm. And um, so I knew the ins and outs of what it took to build something that had a great volume of sales. Mm. And I was willing to, social media was something that I was willing to tackle. Um, My husband is, uh, he he works for BP. So he's a great, he has a lot of skills and he welds and he can build and he, he's just yeah. very skillful. Um, so I knew that he, you know, we weren't lacking in, in the effort. <laughs> we yeah. both had the desire. So, yeah. And what was it like then when you made that decision, he made that call, you're going to go for it. Talk about what you've been through to um, realize, right. you know, everything that you ha- have accomplished so far. Yeah. So we... We really tackled this as, as much as we possibly can. You know, we didn't want to tip, put it just a toe in. And then um, I knew that you, you really can't make a living off of just a little. Mm-hmm. So we needed to actually expand what we were doing in the first place, which also meant acquiring more land. It meant acquiring a lot more livestock infrastructure that the property that we actually purchased did not come with. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then it also took, you know, website building and a social media uh. building and all of that stuff that just kind of played into it. Um, profit margins are something that I at least came in with some experience with. So I understood what, you know, what price points we actually had to hit, um, and where economy of scale came into play, um, and what that would look like. The, the value of shipping, that's been a big thing for us. Um, you know, we have about 50% of our sales is on farm. 50% of our sales is shipped across the country. Wow. So, yeah, so that, that opened up the door to, to being more than just our backyard, um, so we, we hustled, we hustled a lot. It's been a lot of late nights and early mornings, <laughs> but I think when you're doing something you're excited about, you wake up ready to go. Even if you've only got four hours of sleep, it's yeah. just kind of one of those things that's worth it. It's very much so. So what did you start with? Like, what was the first thing that you guys were growing? Um, ironically, my husband started with a bottle calf. <laughs> he, um, had a local farmer that had a beef bottle calf that was willing to part with. And so he, he raised that up and, and I, um, I ended up with a family dairy cow that we loved. Um, uh, we raised a garden. I had a, a few lambs, um, and then we had two pigs. So it was very much so a homestead type situation. It was not all day long chores, right. <laughs> things like that. But that was like the hobby farm start. Yeah. And then that was what you scaled up from. Yeah. And everything we set up with that small amount of livestock, we did on a scalable kind of uh, structure. So we wanted to make sure that our automated feeders and things like that were something that we could scale. And we really wanted to reduce our chore time because at the time we were both still working full time too. So... um that really helped, uh, and then it also allowed us to scale the business pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So, as you started to scale, what did you bring on? More cattle, more because you do yeah. cattle, sheep, pigs. What am I missing? Chickens. Yeah, are a big chunk of your business. Yeah, meat birds and layers. Mm-hmm. So we um, from there, I bought an entire flock of sheep. <laughs> So we had a gal that approached us and just said, Hey, I'm, I'm wanting to get out of this. I've been, Mm. I've been raising this specific breed of sheep for 30 some years and I'd like to be done. So uh, I bought an entire flock of sheep. Um, My husband actually turned around to a seed stock producer for Red Angus and said, Hey, I'd like to buy your, your calf crop. Mm. Um, And so we ended up establishing some really great relationships with people who were willing to support, um, and with their knowledge, especially what we were doing. Um, and then the chicken was a big one. We have, 
it, with our pastures, it just does not thrive. We're in sandy loam soil. We knew we had to either make a huge investment in repairing our soil in order to even grow grass. Mm. Or in our case, we couldn't necessarily afford to do that. So we kind of skirted the idea and said, what else could we do that yeah. would turn a profit and turn around and give us better ground? And that was the meat birds. So we run pastured poultry as well. And that's like the chicken tractor sort of idea yeah. where you kind of move them, how often you move them, what, what you know, yeah. they, they kind of fertilize and eat and all that exactly. stuff. So we move them every 12 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, move them every 12 hours. They're fed every 12 hours. Um, we're pretty consistent about it. Uh, it builds great soil. In fact, this drought that we're going through, the ground where the actual chickens were is still pretty green and it's still growing um, without watering. So that's been big. Um, but we really we really saw how that amount of chicken litter can really impact and make a big difference quickly without the cost investment. So it's it's been, plus chicken is a big seller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so talk about that. You sell a lot of chicken. <laughs> we do. And all the, the other meats that we just listed from the animals. Like you're growing the sheep for meat, for yes. mutton and lamb and yeah. stuff. So we do we do lamb here and then we also do pelts and yarn. So okay. I've tried, you know, my big thing was that we had to figure out how to use as much of the animal as possible. The amount of waste that we couldn't afford. You know, lamb is, you don't make very much money on lamb at all. It's kind of in the tank right now. Um, but for us, we could do a, we could turn a great profit on, on pelts. Um, so it's a very multi-purpose species that we had for us. We specifically do not raise sheep that are in commercial channels because we, we needed something to market differently. Yeah. Um, so we chose that Avenue. We raise a breed of Icelandic sheep. It's very uncommon. The carcasses are a little bit smaller, but we definitely can command a higher price. Hmm. Um, and because of that, they, uh, I didn't need the quantity of sheep, that I think I would have if I had a commercial, more common breed. Um, but they are definitely, they're the most high-maintenance thing we have here. Really? <laughs> but, yeah, but they are, are um, something I think also people love them. You know, it's, it's a big attraction too. And so you have all these animals and you want to start selling meat. How do you go about doing that? Right. So we knew that we had to be direct-to-consumer. So I, you know, there's just the price of meat right now is so farmers are just getting so little for the product that they're producing that we knew that selling direct to consumer was the only way we were actually ever going to make a living, especially because we don't have thousands of acres. We don't have a ton of space. So um, we decided instead to to open up our own channels of sales. And so I, I launched a website so people can go online. They purchase their products. We do not sell by the pound. That's a, been a big one. Mm. Um, we have flat price for weight ranges. People purchase them and I, I either ship them to their door overnight or they come here to the farm and pick it up. So you just pick a price and it, the package of meat and probably all the stuff that you're selling is frozen, right? Yes. Yep package of frozen meat is going to be between a certain range yeah we store it here at negative five so we have on site at the farm we have walk-in freezers and some merchandising freezers that allow us to maintain that temperature and we try and sell it as fresh as possible and then like the size range is just like you're going to be fairly close to a given number but you 
does that give you a certain efficiency and like packaging and all of that that you don't have to weigh everything and apply the price and everything has a different price and all that kind of stuff? Exactly. And on a consumer standpoint, a confused mind says no. So I didn't want to have my 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 customers sitting there and saying, well, I don't really know what this is actually going to be or mm. what is the, you know, I don't want them asking questions. I wanted them to be able to see something and say, okay, I know exactly how much that's going to be. So for us, we have a set price for chicken at, at each weight. Um, so between three and a half to four pounds is going to be one price from four to four or four to four and a half is going to be another price. They know exactly what's going to come out of their pocket. Um, and I think because of that also, it simplifies our life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when I do inventory, it all goes into our online um, sales systems and I'm able to, to quickly stick that in there and price that. Um, and then people do not get the same, uh, you know, they're not sitting there trying to do the math on their phone. I, you know, I used yeah. to do that. So yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to have to do that. Totally. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. On the flip side though, could people say, well, you know, I'm going to pay this price, but I'm not sure exactly how much meat I'm going to get. Yes and no. Um, they, the weight ranges we, we try and keep pretty, pretty strict and, and yeah. pretty small. You know, I don't want someone to purchase a filet mignon that's going to be, you know, two pounds and then expect a package that's two and a half. Right. For sure. So, okay. So, we're so pre- there's pretty tight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so we, and, and everything, you know, when we do, it makes inventory not as easy, but, yep. um, the sales system, you know, we use Shop, a Shopify website and mm. because of that, it just makes things so easy for what we're doing. So mm-hmm. basically what you're describing is you're a fully integrated, oper- vertically integrated operation. Yes. Yes. Which, I mean, that's the kind of jargon of like big corporate stuff. You guys yeah. are the opposite of that. But that you're saying that makes sense for what you're doing. It does. It really does. You know, we needed our customers to be able to feel confident in where the, what they were purchasing. Um, you know, the only thing that we don't have in our online store is our eggs. And that's simply because we run out constantly. Yeah. But I needed, you know, because half of our, our um, sales are online and half of them are here on the farm, I really needed to ha- be able to control the two of those. And inventory wise, it was going to be difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so having a website like this has just made our life really easy. And then we also have a subscription program. So um, that makes it really easy too, because people can purchase their meat it, on a subscription basis. And as a um, farmer, that is an amazing way for me to guarantee what my income is going to look like. As a consumer, it also takes the guesswork out of it. That makes sense. Yes. All that you're describing is way more like logistics and business strategy than I would have expected. Yeah. It, so you like it's like you have to do that to be able to survive. You yeah. can't just like start growing stuff and oh, hopefully somebody will buy it. And exactly. There's more to it than that. Yeah. We, you know, and I think. There's a lot of romanticizing farming and I absolutely love, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to just sit with a cup of coffee in the early morning and stare at what we get to do. We're so thankful. But I also knew that in order for us to make an actual income where we can support our family and, you know, we have three small children, I needed to be able to support them too. It was going to require some actual business sense, not just uh, the nostalgia of farming. Talk then, I'm still thinking about the vertically integrated part, and you're talking about your website and using a Shopify website. Talk about social media, too. You're very active. You're posting a lot of what's happening on the farm via social media. I think I know the answer, but I want to hear from you. Like, why? Why do you do that? Why do you share so much of what you're doing? Yeah, you know, when we originally started 
um, or, or moved here, it was we truly just wanted to connect deeper with our own food. And I saw a group of people online wanting to do the same thing. And so I started a Instagram account simply so that I could, I could share and interact with those people. Never in a million years did I think it would actually amount to anything. Mm. Um, but I think there, there is a major gap in the bridge between farm and consumer. And I Mm. think one of the pieces that a lot of farms miss is the opportunity to educate for the first time in human history, people don't know a farmer and that's scary. Um, and a lot of it is both sides get their defenses up. You know, consumers don't like, they kind of vilify farmers. So true. Yeah, and farmers get really frustrated with the logo or the lingo that consumers use. Exactly. And instead of getting abrasive, I feel like social media has been a way to share um, and educate without harping. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so people come to us, you know, they'll, they'll, they they don't know how milk is, you know, they know that milk comes from a cow, but they don't know the entire process. Yeah. They don't know how beef is produced. They don't understand how chickens can't be grass fed. You know, there's Mm -hmm. these little things that we can teach people that this has opened up a lot to. Yeah. And I will say too, you know, we love that we get to provide food for other people, but my husband and I really have a passion for empowering people who raise their own food as well. So this isn't, um, when we built our, our business, we knew that there was value in both of those, um, kind of groups of people. Right. Mm-hmm. to serve as kind of an incubator then too for others yeah doing the same way. rather than like a competition we're going to try yeah. to dominate and not help anybody else kind of thing exactly you know there's billions of people in the world that need to eat there's what 360 million people in the united states that's way more people than i can feed yep. so there's definitely i think that um especially for homesteading type people if you can empower someone with those skills you know, we do a, uh, this fall, we're doing a whole hog butchery class. So it's basically where homesteaders can come and they can learn how to actually break down a hog. Mm. And, and that's something that, you know, we, we wouldn't have, um, we would miss out on an opportunity to connect with that group of people yeah. if we alienated them. Just thinking about this now as we're talking, because I know some people poo poo that like, oh, are you really going to be able to support yourself homesteading? Well, probably 99 out of 100 people won't be able to. But even just them doing that is educational about where their food comes from. And it probably totally changes how they shop and how they eat. Yeah. And all of that. There's a huge benefit of having people at least have exposure to those kinds of things. Plus, I know it feels good for a lot of people. I know it feels good for me. And there are lots of gaps. Having grown up on a farm, there's still lots of gaps in my farm knowledge about how different animals, different food is produced. It's like, I want to learn that stuff just because it's fun. Yeah, exactly. Well, and if you think about it too, you know, they're going to value the product that a farmer is producing if they've tried to produce it themselves. So even if that means they spend more, they're willing to spend more on something that a farmer produces because they tried to raise it themselves or, you know, if they succeed, more power to them. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it really at the core of what people misunderstand about farming? You list some of those things that... You know, I, I guess I always struggled with this because I grew up, again, I grew up around farming. So a lot of people in the farming community would be like, oh, yeah, everyone just thinks their food comes from the grocery store and thinks that, you know, chocolate milk comes from brown cows and wow, consumers don't know anything. Well, it's like, well, they know more than that. But still, at the same time, some of the things that you list are like, wow, you've actually dealt with people who kind of don't know that? Like, that is an eye opener because I take a lot of that stuff for granted. Right. 
Right. You know, we did have someone one time ask if they could please have all brown eggs because they thought they had better nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I just think, you know, that was a marketing gimmick five years ago where yeah. someone said the brown eggs come from pastured hens. And that's not necessarily true. But So what is the truth about brown eggs? Uh, they're just as healthy as the white eggs. <laughs> and they just come from... From different a different breed of hen. Right. Yeah. Right. So we, we've dealt with, you know, some some major things that, like you said, I took for granted too. You know, I'm, I'm, I may have grown up in town, but I was very, very fortunate that I did have a dad who was a farmer. Um, prior, their family lost their farm when he, his dad passed away. Mm. Um, but he was very, he was very educating. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I did, you know, I had siblings that had married into farming families. Mm. So it, I think that consumers right now are definitely being given a lot of politically based jargon and ideas that can really, they trickle down and affect people like me Mm. and people like our neighbors who are, you know, traditional cattle farmers selling to commercial channels. Mm -hmm. So I really, I feel bad right now because I feel like consumers are being pulled in three different directions. And they don't know what to believe. They don't know what's right. You know, it, uh, is gra- you know what does grass-fed really mean? Yeah. You know, that's a big one. We get asked all the time, are your cattle grass-fed? Well, technically, yes. They are totally grass-fed their whole life. Um, but is grass-fed the same as pasture-raised? Is, yeah. you know, is, is, is grass-fed really not in a feed? You know, it can be in a feedlot. You can have all of these yeah. different things that occur, which I don't really, th- I think there's a place for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely, my big thing is I do not want to, I don't want other farmers to feel like I ever bash their method of yeah. raising at livestock because that's theirs. They've found their niche. They've found that what works and this is what we're doing because this fits us. But I definitely, if I have someone who comes to us and says, hey, this is the kind of meat I want. I'm not going to turn around and try to convince them out of it. I'm just going to give them a list of people who do it that way. Yeah. Talk about even grass fed, just a a small tangent on that. A lot of people think that, you know, if it's not grass fed, then it's just fed grain and corn its whole life. Well, most, I don't know what you call it, not a corn fed, whatever. It's just corn finished. So it just eats corn at the very end. And most of its life is still grass fed as well. So yeah, there's just so many misconceptions based on a lot on buzzwords. Yes. What do you think drives that? Why? Is it just a marketing thing? Is it, I know there are other people involved in that sphere and that, you know, cultural conversation that aren't necessarily just marketing. They have maybe an ax to grind. Yeah. You know, um, I'll put this out there, but I, it's kind of an embarrassing thing. (laughs) <laughs> um, for, for about three, three years of my life, I was a vegetarian and for a while there I was a vegan. And, and why, I, why is that embarrassing? <laughs> I think for me it is because speaking to someone who knows farming, it can be, um, it came with a lot of misconceptions. I didn't mm. do it for the right reasons. Mm. I was doing it for the information that I was fed. I was doing it for, you know, for me, it wasn't necessarily an ethical thing. It was something that I believed was healthy. Um, and I learned a lot about myself and how every body, specifically body, is different. Yeah. And um, I also learned that the information that I had been given had a lot of biased sources. Yeah. You know, the great thing about social media is you can share with a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people. The poor thing about social media is the people sharing don't always have accountability. Yeah. So there can be people out there that, that, you know, have a huge following and they say something and their following is going to believe that whether it's true or not. So, and we've seen that 
I mean, this last year and a half has been kind of a very big eye opener on what that looks like uh, with COVID. But it it with farming, it it's really hurtful. It's really hurtful. A big one is dairy. You know, people will say constantly that oh, milk has antibiotics in it. Well, no, that's not legal. That's never been a thing. Yeah. That's not, yeah. So, I, you know, and that's another thing too is, is all of those labels. You know, no, no farmer is, is putting antibiotics in their animal and then selling the meat the next day. No one is doing that. And if they are, they're getting in really big trouble. Yeah. So like major fines, if not yeah. prison, if, yeah. Yeah. It's a big, big deal. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, that needing to be antibiotic free is, is a huge buzzword mm-hmm. or, you know, my favorite is chicken being hormone free. Well, chicken's been hormone free for 40, 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> you, there's nothing FDA approved for hormones for chickens. Yeah. So I, I think consumers are, they're trying, Yeah. they're trying, but you, you don't, you know better when, or you do better when you finally know better. Talk about the hormone free thing. I always laugh at that because really technically everything has hormones in it. Like everything, yes. the plant, animal, mm-hmm. humans, that's what runs these, you know, biological systems. Yes. So like one of the only things that you put on your table that doesn't have hormones in it is probably the salt. Yeah. Water. <laughs> Water. Yeah. 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 But that's not, you know, what people have been led to think or, you know, value. Yeah. And for me, you know, I was very much so plant-based because I believed in that whole concept of I could get just as much vitamins and minerals from plants. But um, bioavailability plays a huge role Mm. in that. And yes, that plant might have vitamin A in it, but your body can't actually Mm. absorb it. So that when, when my husband said that he wanted to start raising his own meat, I was like, okay, I can get on board with this. I can get on board with you wanting to raise your own so that we know where it's coming from. We can, we can control that process. Um, and it's not that we believed the other farms weren't doing it right. It was just that we wanted to do it start to finish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of people. And as you're experiencing, as you sell this stuff, a lot of people who want to have at least a good, I mean, they don't see it as start to finish as you do because you're here every day, Yes. but they want to at least be connected to that and understand, know your story and the story of the food that they're eating. Right. And that's why social media has become such a big piece of what it is that we get to do. It's brought in a lot of people because they see, you know, they see the the pigs farrowing. They see these piglets being born and then they come and they purchase from us and they know exactly how that animal was raised, start to literally start to finish, birth to butcher. Um, You know, our, our biggest problem is that as we've scaled up, we've really learned and realized the lack of access small guys like us have to processors that allow us to sell to the public in the first place. That's been kind of the, especially because of, of the last year, um, it's yeah. a huge piece of the, you know, decentralizing our food system has to happen, but there's a lack of small processors that can make it happen. Yeah. And a combination of kind of the way that systems have evolved, the food system and how f- you know, meat is processed and packaged and marketed and sold, plus government regulation then too, which kind of reinforces that, which I've talked to multiple people who are like, yeah, there's a reason why it's that way because there are big dollars that support it. You know, they, I don't know how much of a conspiracy theory versus reality that is, but 
like we were talking about when you were showing me around the farm before we started talking here, you know, I'm looking at your cuts of meat and talking about, you know, the challenges to here, you can raise meat all day long and you can do ethical meat and you're building soil and you're doing all these cool things. The story is incredible and people want that stuff. There's a demand for it, but there's this breakdown in that processing part of this vertical integration. Exactly. What do you think's got to change? What, what would you, I mean, if you could just step in and say, do this, this, and this, what would it be? Um, I think, well, how much money can I have? <laughs> <laughs> Sky's um, the limit. Right. Money's right. no object. <laughs> if, you know, there, there are a lot of little farmers that say, you know, I don't have access to USDA butchery. Well, you do. You just have to drive. Yeah. That's, that's the piece of this setting up a USDA butchery. We have friends that are, that are, that are opening theirs here in the next few months. Mm. The, the process was five years from start to finish between government regulations and all of the plans they had to do. And of course, USDA has higher requirements. Um, five years is a big investment in time. Plus a lot of money too. Plus a lot, a lot of money before you ever see a return on that investment. And, you know, we understood that it's, it takes an average business five years to make an income but, or a profit, but they haven't even started. Um, if I could, if, if there was anything I could do, I would, I would open up um, or allow at least a USDA processor every, you know, 500 miles at least. Um, poultry processing is a big one right now. There is so few USDA poultry processors. Washington, thankfully, has an exemption in place so that you can process on the farm under a certain license. You cannot sell outside of the state, though. Mm. So for us, that definitely is um, a hindrance. We have a lot of people that want to shop chicken with us that simply cannot buy our products because they live in another state. Um, And we're hoping to change that. But the the lack of access to butchers um, that can give people the proper cut meat that can cross state lines would be huge. You know, where we're at, too, we have a huge Canadian following. Mm. We're right here by the Canadian border, um, and we have a lot of people that have asked for our meats. We cannot ship into Canada. The customs is just a nightmare. But they can come down and pick it up and take it home, Mm. but only if it's USDA inspected. Mm. Mm -hmm. So you have to put that extra effort out as a producer. But for me, if, if in an ideal world there would be enough producers for all farms to take advantage of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the rules for them, I mean, it makes sense to have rules. It's a food safety yeah. issue at on one level. Like, yeah, we need to have rules. Things need to be expected, inspected. There need to be standards. There needs to be training, all this kind of stuff. So I'm not necessarily balking against that. But when you look at it and the way some of those are applied, it's more of like a market protection move than it is really about food safety yeah. from what I've seen and what I've heard. Yeah. And we're really, really grateful that we have some really great USDA processors to work with. Yeah. The problem is just the distance from the farm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a heck of a drive. And they're swamped right now too, right? And they're right? swamped. They're swamped. Yeah. So the crazy thing is, is a farmer could start, they could start farming today. But if you're a pork producer, you know, it takes, for us, because we raise pastured pork, it's going to take a little longer to finish them because they're on pasture. But, uh, you know, it takes eight months to finish that animal from birth, birth to butcher. But you, there's no way you're going to get a date. So you can start planning when you're going to farrow. And mm. then you can schedule your date and then hope and pray that your sow's farrow then. And that you're going to have numbers to fill. 
but we we really really worked hard to get to the point where we know exactly how many we're butchering each month and exactly what we're doing and we've set ourselves up so that that took time though that took a lot of time and a lot of failure a lot of failure i think our customers have been through five or six different butchers Mm. until we found some processors that that would do what we wanted to do um with the quality standards that we had what does it feel like to go through those failures like you mentioned you know that's that's the frustrating part that that doesn't necessarily end up on the the like feel good here's the story of how this food was produced but it was a really long hard road to work through all these things to get there yes yes you know i think that one of the key pieces to succeeding as a first generation farmer is being willing to humble yourself oh look at that thank you lou <laughs> he must have heard you having a cough i love it what a thoughtful son oh yes um yeah, so we had to get humble. We had to get really, really humble. We had to ask questions. We had to admit our failures to people who were successful and hopeful getting in hopes of getting some advice. Yeah. Um, you know, when an animal gets sick, we didn't know what the heck we were doing. So we very quickly established a relationship with the local vet. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, we also told them, we don't know what we're doing and we really hope that you'll be the professional that does. <laughs> And thankfully, they took us under their wings and, and have been very wonderful to us. Awesome. But it definitely, um, you can't come into this pretending you know what you're doing. Mm. I mean, I you can talk to me about profit margins and sales and shipping and websites and social media, but that stuff I might actually have a little bit of a voice in. But this other stuff, I had to get really, we all did. We all got really humble. Mm-hmm. Yes, there was a lot of failures. <laughs> A lot of failures you know your website crashes you can't always control that things might go wrong you know ups might lose a box there's a lot of failures and things that happen um but we were first of all determined i think there's there's that we have enough skin in the game that we had to be yeah. we had to make it work we couldn't just at one point we got to the point where we we're like we can't fold <laughs> like we can't afford to fold um we have to keep going but you make a lot of mistakes. You know, first-generation farmers don't always know what to do when animals get sick. They don't always know what to do to make your soil the best. You know, there we didn't know at the best opportune time to make hay. You know, there was a lot of stuff that we just didn't know. Um, YouTube University was... <laughs> it was. is amazing how much you can learn. Yes. And even for somebody who's been doing it a long time, you can go on there and learn how somebody else somewhere else does it. Oh, hey, that works? Yeah. I guess we'll try. Exactly. Exactly. And there's, you know, there's going to be failures in every single business that gets off the ground. Um, Thankfully, though, we have been um, determined enough to make sure that those failures didn't define it. Now you are a first generation farmer and in some ways you're starting from scratch, but your family at the same time does have a farming legacy, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was just that kind of sort of skip of half of a generation that reset the clock on for your family or t- talk what what is your family's farming legacy yeah. history so my dad um uh was 29 when his father passed away but mm. prior to that he raised hogs for hormel mm. so he did have a larger hog operation he had a, he had some opinions down <laughs> we, in skagit yeah is in where skagit he farmed yep okay. um and they they closed in um I want to say it was the early 80s, to be honest with you, but it was before I was born. Mm-hmm. And after that happened, my dad moved into town and they raised me in a, in a small town. So there was, I feel like 
being in 4-H also gave me a little bit of a, a leg up. When I was in college, I definitely, I was in CUDS and I joined, as, you know, I went to Washington State University and I joined mm-hmm. as many clubs as I possibly could. I never owned a cow, but I just loved the people and um, they all thought I was nuts, but that's okay. What did you go to WSU for? Like, what was your degree that you were um, going for? That's kind of funny. Originally, I went to go for nursing and then I just mm-hmm. decided I didn't want to live in Spokane. <laughs> So I, yeah, yeah. So I, I did a bunch of animal science classes. I did biochemistry. Um, and I really loved going to school. I loved learning. I think that's part of what has made this really work is the fact that I've always, you know, I I get excited about something and I'm willing to do what it takes to learn, to make it, to, to do well. You have to always be learning Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. farm. Yes. Yes. And I don't believe that any failure is truly failure. You know, you learned something out of it that you're going to make better next time. Yeah. 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 So how far back in your family did that farming go? Um, my, you know, to be honest with you, I, um, my dad and his dad had, uh, their, their small family farm. They were also a micro dairy. Mm. So they milked cows. They milked their two cows, um, for the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and prior to that, I'm not, you know, when my dad lost his dad, he didn't really talk about him very much. So I kind of grew up not really knowing a whole lot about him. Yeah. Um, and then my dad passed away actually in, in February of this year. Mm. So he had a, a lot to do. You know, he would come over and, and complain about the things that we were doing wrong. But then he'd yeah. say, oh, you guys are doing so great. Yeah. Um, he really loved what we got to do and what we were doing. Um, and he really loved that we were actually selling directly to customers. And he really loved that interaction with people mm. and to be able to talk to them. And he would come to our markets and sit down in the chair just like he was selling the meat himself. So it was a lot of fun. What's that like now to carry on here after having lost him? Um, it's actually, you know, for the first few months, it was really difficult because he, yeah. um, my dad would put chairs all over the farm. So he would go water the the pigs and he'd stick a chair out there and he'd go sit yeah. in the chair while the waters were filling. I actually did not realize how much watering he was doing for us until <laughs> he was gone. Um, but putting those chairs away was really hard. For a long time there, I left the chairs. But... I think um, the one thing that my dad did give to me was the excitement. And so instead of it being a painful thing, it's exciting. Um, He was a really, he loved people. Mm. He loved people. So the amount of people that we get to see on a a daily basis here or talk to even is something that he would have been so excited for. So that vibe of excitement and optimism that he left you with helps you through that grieving process then yeah. and having I'm sure lots to do every day yes. too. Yes, I think busy is my drug. <laughs> yeah. We have a lot to do, a lot of things. Ironically, my dad was a grumpy grumpy guy, <laughs> but he 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 might have been grumpy on the outside, but he had a pretty soft heart. Yeah. So he had a lot of opinions on things that he would have done differently. Yeah. But then when it worked, he was like, "Oh yeah, that's a great idea." <laughs> I know that old farmer vibe. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, and he was a mechanic for years, and then he turned around and was building house or uh, repairing and working on houses. So he had a lot of skills. Yeah, um, and that has really come in handy for us. You know, I'm not someone who, thankfully, needs people to do things for me. Yeah. You know, when it came to building our store, you know, I was right in there with them building the store. Awesome. So it it's you know I've built sheds, I've built barns. We've we've really taken that um, those skills that I learned. I think were extremely beneficial. So all of this backdrop, all of the story that's led you to here, 
at this point now, what would you most want that person that, that we talked about earlier that is unfortunately not connected with farming really anymore? And not necessarily because they don't want to be. It's just that's the way our society is evolving. What would you want them to know? Um, that you can ask questions and talking directly to a, a farmer is one of the most, I mean, w- they feed you three times a day at least. Yeah. Um, and they uh, usually love to answer questions too, yes. depending on the person, but a lot of them really yeah. do like to talk about what they do. Exactly. And depending on how you word the question, yeah. um, you know, cu- come into it with an open mind and have mm. a, start a conversation. There are so many farmers out there that are just craving to tell their own story that don't get the platform to do so. Um, and it's our, it's our, an opportunity that we have, but it, it's also a consumer's responsibility. Mm. You know, how much of the food budget 50 years ago did people act, or how much of someone's budget did they actually spend on food 50 years ago or 100 years ago? Mm. It's a fraction of that now. Yeah. People expect cheap food produced cheaply, and you can't. You can't get that and expect a farmer to not suffer. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a huge sacrifice to do this on a daily basis anyway. Um, I don't think people realize the amount of hours that go into um, running a business like this and a farm. Um, but it's something that people, if they're doing it, they're very passionate about it. And yeah. the, the first person that you should ask questions in regards to labels is an actual farmer. Yeah, I think... That gives good perspective on, in some ways, the hypocrisy of of people saying, well, you really should be farming this way, and why don't you fall under this category, and why aren't you certified for this, or why do you use this practice that we don't think is the best possible practice? Like, okay, why aren't you doing that? But those same people often, not all of them, some people make good on this and do the right thing and pay you know, what it takes to actually produce that, but a lot of those folks with that kind of criticism still go to the store and still buy this ultra cheap food. Yeah. Not to start this like quarrel, but really if if that's what you want, that's great, but you you know, you need to pay for it too because it has a significant cost. Yeah. And then I've seen criticism too of like, well you can't do all those things on your farm. Well then your business model's broken. You should go out of business. Like, you know, maybe part of the business model is off, but Farms going out of business isn't going to solve that, unfortunately. No. no. Well, I, what is it? 1% of the world feeds the other 99%? I, yeah. You, you got to be willing to support that 1%. You know, we had a conversation with a chicken producer, um, a large-scale barn commercial chicken producer, a few months ago. And just in that conversation, we talked about he could never produce chicken the way we do with his margins like the the conversion rate on the feed conversion is terrible on pastured poultry mm. it's just not great but part of it is because they're moving all i mean they're constantly moving they're not contained to a small area yep. so you know it can't necessarily be applied across the board you can't say to someone well you need to do it this way and then expect them to be able to yeah. charge the same amount like you said because it's just not gonna happen and 70% of chicken farmers in the United States live below the poverty line. That's sad. That's depressing. There's there's no reason someone's children deserve to go without so that you can have cheap food. Sorry, yep. that was snarky. <laughs> but it's the truth. And, and in some ways, I think sometimes it's good to be snarky about that because I think most people who do that have no idea. And so to say, yeah, this is the reality, it's kind of a harsh wake-up call and maybe one that a lot of people need, like, Oh yeah, and I'm just like bargain shopping and busting out the coupons and you know which people do and 
I know a lot of people who are quite well off and could, you know, and, and not that I blame people who have money to be frugal, but just because you can, I think at this point we need to recognize at least with food doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, that's where social media has come into such amazing play for us because we've actually been able to, you know, I start recording in the morning and I'm really good about recording all day long, but I don't actually post it all day long or else yeah. I'd be, you know, I'd have yeah. a life with a phone in between me and someone else. Totally. Um, but we'll so just sh- like taking pictures, taking video of everything yeah. that you're doing yeah. through the day. Yeah. And sometimes I'll timestamp it. And then people will realize how much time, you know, in the summertime, in the early spring, we are moving sheep every 12 hours. Mm -hmm. I don't think people realize the amount of time it takes to do what it is that we do. And social media has opened up the door for us to say, you know, to show them that we're up when the sun gets up and Mm. we go to, you know, summertime, we're in bed at 11 o'clock at night. Like, it's just the way it goes. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a busy season. It's a peak season. It's hard work, but it definitely, you know, it pays off. But again, social media, it's just, it helps us tell that story and reach an audience we would never know otherwise. So honestly, how many hours a day are you putting in during busy season? Um, we probably work an average of at least 12 to 14 hours a day. Um, and I won't, Seven days a week? Pretty much, yeah. Wow. And I won't say it's productive all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, some of that is little things like sitting down and just working on making sure our website works. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we ship on t- Mondays and Tuesdays. We do the majority of our shipping on Tuesdays, but it's just little things like gathering the dry ice, making sure the materials are ready to go, setting up orders, getting order forms, you know, everything filled out, getting meat pulled. Mm-hmm. That That is a full day job on Tuesdays typically. Um, and, and uh, you know, running the store, it just takes time. And then, of course, I am really, really grateful that Ryan is a very hard worker and he's a natural early riser. <laughs> so he does a lot for us. Um, but he is really the backbone that makes the physical stuff work and he's very handy. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it, they're long days. They're very long days. What's the joke that, um, he doesn't want to work nine to five so that he can work 24 <laughs> seven. <laughs> but when you love doing what you're doing, it's just a completely different yeah. kind of work. Yeah. And, and it's, it's also a lot more fun, um, working for yourself and working for your own I don't want to say dreams because it makes it sound so cheesy, but, um, and doing it alongside your kids. You know, we've, our kids are, we do homeschool, but our kids understand what profit margins look like. They know that my son runs his own egg business technically. So he gets his egg money and, um, he has to turn around and buy the feed. So he knows how much is left over. And so he knows exactly how much he's actually making per hour in order to produce the eggs he's he has and he's learned this year when feed prices hiked that he might want to start raising the prices on his eggs <laughs> but he there's those kinds of things that that I'm really really grateful for that we wouldn't get if we weren't building a business like this how can people connect with you what's the website what's the socials if they want to you know buy from the farm how do they do that so they can go online to winnorfarms.com all of our information is on there. I do have a blog that is, is going constantly. W-I-D-N-O-R. Um, yep, Widner. W-I-D-N-O-R, Widnor Farms. Dot com. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then we're also on Instagram. I'm really active on there. It's Again, it's just Widnor Farms. They can go online. They can um, see the ins and outs of pretty much every single thing we do is on there. And we ship every Monday and Tuesday. And then people can buy from the farm too, yep, right? Yeah, they can buy, buy. Yeah, UPS comes right to the farm and the meat goes on the truck and goes straight to their doorstep within two days at least. Awesome. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for sharing your story. And thanks for having me out here to the farm. Of course. And thank you for doing it, for, <laughs> for growing food yeah. to feed people. Now I need to go over to the cooler and see if I should make a few purchases oh, from you it. before I go home. <laughs> yes, I'll have to hook you up. <laughs> Sounds good. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. Thank you. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. 